0: Preparation for our sermon passage Which is Numbers chapter 11 And Because we see we see sin Among the people of God And the people of God Until we go home are a mixed multitude That means there are sheep among the goats Tears among the wheat And so um, we find all human beings Even in the church Have one or two problems Either a justification problem They're not converted Or they are converted They're justified and they need more sanctification. Okay, Numbers... Progressive sanctification. Um, numbers 11. Let me take from verse um, 16. We looked at 1 through 15 last time together, but 16 to the end of the passage. Numbers eleven sixteen. God's holy word... The Lord therefore said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and their officers, and bring them to the tent of meeting, let them take their stand there with you. Then I will come down with you and speak with you there. I will take of the Spirit who is upon you, I will put him upon them. They shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it alone. I say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow you shall eat meat, for you shall you shall for you have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, Oh, that someone would give us meat to eat, for we were well off in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten, nor twenty, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils, and it will become loathsome to you. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you, you have wept before him, saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? But Moses said, The people among whom I am are 600,000 on foot, Yet you have said, I will give them meat, so that they should eat it for a whole month. Should flocks and herds be slaughtered for them, to be sufficient for them? Should all of the fish of the sea be gathered together for them, to be sufficient for them? The Lord then said to Moses, Is the Lord's power limited? Now you shall see whether my word will come true or not. Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. Also he gathered seventy men of the elders to the people, stationed them around the tent, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took of the Spirit who was upon him and placed him upon the seventy elders. When the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, but they did not do it again. But two men had remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad, the name of the other was Medad, and the Spirit rested upon them. Now they were among those who had been registered, but had not gone out to the tent. They prophesied in the camp. So a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth, said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all of the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Then Moses returned to the camp, both he and the elders of Israel. Now there went forth a wind from the Lord. It brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp. About a day's journey on this side, a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp, about two cubits deep on the surface of the ground, the people spent all day and all night, and the next day gathered the quail. He who had gathered least gathered ten uh, omers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. While the meat was still between their teeth before it was chewed, The anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very severe plague. So the name of the place was called Kibroth Hatavah, because there they buried the people who had been greedy. From Kibroth Hatavah the people set out, from Hazaroth, and they remained at Hazaroth. God's Word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, all of your word is inspired, the pleasant passages and the passages like the one before us. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would give me special insight, both in the content of uh, my sermon, even in the the tone or the manner of the delivery of uh, my sermon, that it would be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, and edifying to your people. And for all of us, as we see here, you record this um, correction of your people, uh, subdue us, Lord, that we would receive even um, words which tend to be a little bit harder. Uh, to your glory and to our sole benefit in Christ we pray. Amen. It's been a few weeks. I think one or two. I can't remember. I. I. I um, it's been a few weeks since I've been in Numbers 11. We took a break last week, maybe the week before. I really, um, times are kind of melding together. But it's been a few weeks since we've been in Numbers 11. The last passage, as I said, was Numbers 11, 1 through 15. And there, if you just see it, the general idea is that the people of God are complaining, and then the, the man of God, the leader of God, is complaining. The people of God are complaining about the food, and the leader of God, Moses, is complaining about the people who are complaining about the food. And so, essentially, what Our passage is, is a continuation of that theme. And um, it's the moaning and the groaning, the griping, uh, the complaining. And for the people particularly, and I would say even Moses, it's moaning and groaning and griping over the particular hardships that they're facing. And for the people particularly, they're griping about the hardships that they're facing in the uh, wilderness journey. Remember, the people of God were slaves for 430 years. God emancipated them by a mighty arm. He brought them out miraculously. He judged the the false gods of Egypt. He judged the army of a pharaoh. And he saved his people miraculously with a mighty hand. And now here we are in the wilderness. The book of Numbers is going to record from year 2 to year 38. uh, Excuse me, just before um, they enter the the promised land. So a 38-year stretch. So they're going to be in the wilderness for 40 years, but Numbers... Uh, encompasses about a 38-year historical stretch. And this is going to be the history of God taking care of his people in the wilderness. And he takes care of them in various ways. But they're complaining. We're going to just look at this idea of God promising certain things in our passage and then bringing them them to pass. Both good things, and I would say some deleterious things as well. And so we're going to look at the concept of judgment for the unbeliever in the household of God, and chastisement for the unbeliever in the household of God. So both people are are making up uh, the audience of the household of God, both true believer and false professor. To one is uh, judgment, to the other is fatherly uh, chastisement, though sometimes we are not able to discern um, each perfectly. And so the first thing that we're going to learn as we look at this particular passage concerning the complaining is God's Word and his reaction to this complaining is, is sin, simply put. Uh, the book of uh, Jude, I'm reading through Jude for my morning worship. Jude has in there one of the marks of an unbeliever. I'm not saying that every, every believer do, any believer doesn't grumble. We, we do. Moses is in heaven. He was on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he was grumbling. But it, it's a sign of unbelief. So habitual grumbling, habitual griping is a mark of a person who's not converted. Habitual, unrepentant, lived in. And so God takes this moaning and groaning about how hard our life is to be a sin. Sin is lawlessness. God is the author of the law. And so can we sin against another man? Man to man sin, yes. But ultimately sin is an offense against God. That's why God's God's man David says in Psalm 32 and 51, against you alone, O God, have I sinned. I mean, he killed Uriah, the husband, the Hittite, mighty man, and then he took his wife. And so he sinned against Bathsheba, he sinned against Uriah, he sinned against all the people of Israel, he sinned against his own name, his own office. But he says, against you alone, O God, have I sinned. Because sin ultimately is an offense against God. So if we, if we gripe against our neighbor, or gripe in the presence of our neighbor, and we instigate against them to gripe, we have sinned against them, but ultimately, because it's against God, it, it, God takes offense at it. We, we learn that. So griping and complaining about how hard our life is, even if our life is hard, is actually a, a sin. And God's response in our passage shows us what he thinks of sin, and how he responds to sin. Sometimes he judges to the unbeliever, which is condemnation, and, and sometimes he chastises as a father to a, a displeased father to a wayward child. I, I want to um, go a little bit slower here, just discussing the sinfulness of complaining. Um, all people do this, non-Christian people and Christian people. We grade sin. We rank sin. Um, such-and-so is bad in a large sin, and such-and-so is small, and it's not really that bad. Little white lies are bad, and robbing a, uh, are not bad, and robbing a bank would be bad. Even Christian people do that. We rank and grade sins. This is a small one. This is a large one. Now, to be fair, our lar- larger catechism, question 151, um, what are the aggravations of sin? That is true. We do make our sins worse before God or, or not, or we mitigate them, based on four particular particulars. One, the person doing the sinning. In this case, it would be a believer, a professing believer. Two, the person being sinned against. In this case, it would be God. You can't sin against a higher person than God. Three, the nature of the offense, griping against the provision of God. That's fairly large. And then four, the occasion of the sin, literally after 430 years of begging God for freedom, and he does it. And you're literally in in the wilderness as he's taking you into the promised land. We see all four of those things among the people of God. So we, in fact, do aggravate our sins. So sometimes we worry about, what about the poor guy in the cave in Zimbabwe and his sins? Well, that's why we send missionaries. Our sins as Christians with a Bible, our sins are worse because we're sinning against knowledge, we're sinning against grace, we're sinning against gifts, all of those things. I'm not saying that we're not forgiven in Christ, but they're more offensive to God because to him is given much, much is required. And so we see the ugliness of sin and the aggravations of sin and regarding the sin of complaining, I kind of sometimes, I think I become, I should not, be as frivolous as I am sometimes. I, there's too much frivolity sometimes in my preaching, and I, I do get um, convicted of that. Um, with the sin of complaining, as Christian people, we sometimes take this almost to be like eating potato chips or breathing. It's really just like everybody does this. It's just, of, of course, everybody complains because life is hard. I do agree that everybody complains, and I do agree that life is hard but this text says that God hates it. That's why we need Jesus. So when we, when we classify as a, a sin as a little sin, it means we're doing it, generally. And then when we commit a bigger sin that we never thought that we would do, then we reclassify that sin so as to, to not be too convicted. Um, I do want us to see, I want us to receive the ugliness of the sin. How... how how displeasing it is to God and how unbecoming as a professing Christian. Just think of it. People look at you. You're on display for Jesus Christ. And people are going to look at you. Oh, you're the Christian. You love Jesus. You live for Him. He's only your, your only hope in life and death. And you'd rather have Jesus than silver and gold. Boy, howdy, you're a griper. <laughs> and what are they saying? That guy, that woman, doesn't believe their own testimony. So when we moan and groan about how hard we have, have it, we're actually putting a stumbling block before an unbeliever before the gospel. Our griping says to the unbelieving world, we don't believe the gospel that we say we believe. So we put a stumbling block before the unbeliever in addition to church. This is a Psalm 73, the Psalm of Asaph. He says, I was going to mumble and grumble, but I didn't because I didn't want to stumble your people when we moan and groan and gripe, oh, God has given me the short end of the stick and my life is so hard, yeah, 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 yeah. There is another brother or sister potentially around us and we are going to depress them. We are going to diminish their faith or hurt their faith. You wouldn't want to cause a little one to stumble. And so when we just look at this business, why does God respond the way that he responds? Because of the aggravation of this particular sin, if that makes any Sense. I don't want to beat a dead horse. This is why we need Jesus. Um, we, we, we sometimes think, well, I haven't committed adultery. I haven't murdered anyone today. Boy, I'm a rock star. Well, even if you haven't committed adultery and haven't murdered someone today, I'm all for not committing adultery and murdering anybody. But have you grumbled? Have you complained? Have you moaned and groaned? And God here exacted the death penalty on a whole slew of people. This is, again, why we need Jesus. It is impossible to go to heaven without the blood of the Lamb because of the magnitude of sin. So, now, the particular people in view, 1 through 15, and then 16 to the end, um, a couple of things. The, the way that the people have, are the professed people of God. They say, we are the children of Israel. We belong to the true and the living God, unlike the gods of the unbelievers, they profess that God loves them and cares for them. And the other thing about these particular people, which is why God is so offended with them, is by their experience, by their experience, they are literally individual, intimate receivers of God's mighty mercy. They, they have experienced salvation. They've had it. They've experienced liberation from slavery And they've experienced God's sustaining, caring power in the wilderness. They've done it. They've gone through it. And still yet, they turn back. And If you read the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 15, Exodus chapter 16, every other sentence, these are some griping people. They come, out of Israel, they come out of bondage three days in. Boy, the water's not very tasty. Grumble, grumble, grumble. 30 days in, boy, this, boy, that. Grumble, 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 grumble. So this is not a one-off. God doesn't just say, boy, howdy, you people are some grumbling people on, on the first time they grumble. They are grumbling like breathing the air. Again, experiencing the goodness of God. If you prayed for something, Oh, Lord God, give me, please help me, save my child, save my grandchild," something like that, and God gave it to you, and you literally received that thing. And then within a three-day period of time, you said, I can't believe God has been so unkind to me, and he's never done anything good to me. What would you expect the person standing next to you? Your kid's alive. Your wife is alive. Your husband's alive. You have food on your table. You're not a slave. You were the guy. That's what's going on. So profession and experience, and we have that. There's not a Christian here in this room that God has not answered super abundant prayers on your behalf. So when we moan and groan, it's lit- we literally want the Holy Spirit to just pull out the TV, like all of the things that he has done for us, spiritual in Christ And then materially speaking, in Christ Jesus. So by profession and by experience, they're grumbling about the hardships that they are enduring in the the wilderness. The Bible calls this place the howling wasteland. Are they going to experience difficulties in the howling wasteland? Yes. But these are to be expected. That's one of the reasons why I preached, I think God records the kind of things that he records for the kind of sermon I preached this morning, you're going to be opposed for Christ's sake. Well, why would you tell people that? Because that's the fact. Why would you tell people when you get in the wilderness, there's going to be some tough plowing? Because it's a fact. So God is not hiding it from his people that they're going to go through hard times, but I want you to think of what God does for them in the wilderness, which provokes God to anger. He leads them... By a pillar of smoke by day, a pillar of fire by night. He's their front guard. He's their rear guard. He feeds them with manna from the heaven, which is typological of feeding them on Christ Jesus. He gives them water from the rock, which again is typological of, of water from the Lord Jesus Christ. Read First Corinthians chapter 10, one through fourteen. The rock followed you in the desert, in the wilderness. Christ followed you in the desert. Uh, desert. God gave you water. God gave you food. He keeps their clothes from wearing thin. He keeps their shoes from wearing out. He protects them from all of their enemies. And where is he leading them to? He says, you're going to get there. The promised land, flowing with milk and honey. Yeah, but but everything's not perfect. Yeah, because you're not in the promised land. So if you've ever been camping, we used to camp in, uh, in, in New Hampshire. When you go camping... There are lots of things that are uncomfortable. It's part of the fun of camping, because you get to be a macho man and camping in the woods, and it's a little uncomfortable. It's the woods. You're camping. You're not home. And so God's people are in the wilderness. They're experiencing certain difficulties, but they're not home. These things are to be expected. So one of the ways that we prevent ourselves from moaning, groaning, and griping is we mitigate our expectations. This is the duty that the Puritans was ripe about to talk about, the duty of self-denial, that we mitigate, we, we diminish the th- what we want. We're, we are happy with what God promises. Sometimes we're angry at God because we think that he hasn't given us something that he's never promised us. God never promised us in this life to be perfectly healthy or perfectly wealthy. Read the Bible. Uh, our brothers and sisters who are in different churches, I think they're wrong. The, the, the Bible never says that we're to be perfectly healthy or wealthy. If you have health or wealth, good on you. But to get angry at God because you don't have health or wealth is to be angry that something that God has not promised. The people of God were uh, enduring that. So, and what they say to God is we had it better as slaves. Have you ever met a Christian that sometimes said, well, I had it better as an unbeliever? Can you imagine Can you imagine? What would you think of a Christian who said, you know what, my life is so hard now as a believer in Jesus. I I had it better as an unbeliever. I'd rather be an unbeliever. Wow. Even if you thought that, would you ever say it? These people were saying it. It was better when we were slaves. 430 years. What's a generation? Forty. How many fathers and mothers and grandfathers and grandmothers, generations born and lived and died in abject slavery, and you get saved from that? And two months in, you're saying, two months in. I wish we were slaves. It was way better. Better food, better living conditions. It's just stunning. This is why sometimes in the Old Testament, God says to Moses, get away from the people. Because I'm just going to start over with the whole lot of them, because they're such a pain. And Moses, on a number of occasions, says, "No, nope, I'm going to stand in the gap. I'm going to pray for them. If you do away with them, do away with me." So that's the ugliness of this sin. God charges the people with sin. I want to say something again regarding that God's assessment. John MacArthur is, I think, he, he, we as a church disagree with some, I think, things which are secondary or tertiary. Some big things, but secondary or tertiary. I think he's a rock star. I think John MacArthur's a rock star. And so um, he had said something like literally 20 years ago that I never forgot. He said something like this. If God does something, it's right because he does it. It's not, it's not that he does stuff that's right. It's anything that he does is right even if we don't understand, and that's key. If God does something, it's right because he's holy, just, and right, and he can't sin. And so apply it to this particular subject of of one, bringing judgment against unbelieving sinners, and then two, bringing fatherly discipline against believing sinners. That's God's right. We charge God with wrong all the time. Oh, that would be wrong for God to do. He should do this. He should do that. We forget ourselves. We, 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 us don't have the authority to say to God, "You should do this." My father should be alive. My mother should be alive. They shouldn't. He shouldn't have died at fifty-six. He should have died at eighty. No, 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 no. You're forgetting yourself. We are the servant. He is always God. When God says, "I hate this sin." And on this particular sinner, it's going to be judgment because they're an unbeliever. I hate this particular sin, but on this particular sinner, sinner, they're a believer. Their judgment's been taken for them in Christ, but I'm going to bring fatherly chastisement and I'm going to bring it this way. We do not have the right to say back to God, you're wrong. Although we do, although we do, we do say, God, I think you should do this. I think you should do that. We're out of order. We are out of order. So when you come here, and, you, and I say that because earlier God killed a whole slew of people with fire. This is where people who are not Christians or Bible-believing Christians think, do you all believe that? Do you really believe that? I mean, you, you really believe? Well, if, you, if we don't believe that God judged sinners by killing a bunch of them with fire, and then later he's going to send a plague, if we don't really believe that, do you really believe that? You really believe that God is going to send His own dear Son and lay the sin of the world upon Him, and then allow Him to be butchered by sinners? You really believe that? You see what I mean. So this shows us the holiness of God, the sovereignty of God, and I would argue the freedom of God. All day long, I know the Armenians and the Calvinists we fight about free will, about the free will of man. What about the free will of God? God is God; He is utterly free. And what we're looking at here is the freedom of God to do with his creatures, man, as he uh, sees fit, according to his own divine uh, purposes. So he defines what a sin is, even though now our, the nation in which we live, I'm 59. Um, ten years ago, you wouldn't have had some certain definitions. I don't even remember if there were trans anything ten years ago. And everything's redefined but it really doesn't matter if man redefines anything because only what God says actually will stand. Though for a time, even these kind of things, God permits people to resist him in a way, but it's very limited and it's only uh, apparent. So the people grumble. And then we've said the people complaining drive Moses. I get a kick out of Moses. They drive Moses over the edge. He wigs out. And he himself is so provoked by their complaining that he complains to uh, God. And he can't stand being the leader anymore. And then he, he has one prayer. He actually doesn't pray for help. What does Moses pray for? He prays that God will kill him. I feel bad for Moses, and I kind of chuckle with Moses, although I shouldn't. I have no sympathy for the people grumbling about the, the meat. I do have sympathy for Moses grumbling about the people. But it doesn't matter who we have sympathy for. Being discontent with our outward condition is a sin no matter what. So groaning when you're in pain is not sin. Griping against God's provision is a sin. And if you ask me where does that line lie that you cross, I don't know, but there is a a line. Read our larger catechism on the 10th commandment. We are to be fully content with our own condition and not grumble or grieve at the good of our neighbor. Moses does each. And I want, this is what I was trying to get at the freedom of God. The church here, Israel in the wilderness is called the church, Acts chapter 7. The Greek word for church, the, the main Greek word for church is ekklesia, the called out. ek the called out ones. There's another word used by James, synagogue, the gathered together one, but it's only used once. The main word is ecclesia, the called out. In Acts chapter 7, it refers back to the to the Israelites in the wilderness, and it will call them, If in a non-KGV Bible, it will call them the congregation. But every other time in, uh, that word ecclesia is used, it's church. So when I say the church is a mixed multitude, it's the Old Testament church and the New Testament church. Mixed multitude means... That among the professing believers, the, the, the visible church is this. All those who profess true religion profess the gospel. The blood of Christ saves us from sins in their children. All those who profess the gospel, true religion, along with their children, that constitutes the membership of the visible church. Within that professing membership, there consists two classes of people, and only God knows. The people that profess, and they do not possess Jesus Christ, savingly, they're formalists. They say they believe savingly in Jesus, and they don't. And oftentimes we know them by their fruits. So that would be a formal Christian. And then the other class would be the true believer. They profess to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ savingly, and they do. Now, Israel is that same exact body. So when God said to them, uh, you're going off to Babylonian captivity for 70 years, to the unbelieving portion of the church, it was judgment or wrath. I will say this. God only has wrath on unbelievers. For a true believer, there is no condemnation for you in Jesus Christ. So if you love the Lord Jesus Christ in spirit and in truth, there is no judgment for you. God will never damn you. God will never condemn you because he has done that for Jesus. That's a Romans chapter 8, verse 1. So for true believers, you have, have, have passed from death to life. Now, this is not a license to sin, but it is a license to live in freedom. So for the true believer, we never get wrath. Never, 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 never. No condemnation. You're never going to hear depart as a true believer. But there are false believers in the church. Being a church member doesn't mean you're a member of Christ's body. They are in danger of hearing depart. That's in Matthew chapter 7. Judas was a a minister, and the Bible calls him the son of damnation. Judas was called the son of perdition, the son of damnation, and he was a minister, hand chosen by Jesus Christ. So church membership, even church office, does not necessarily mean you're born again. Now for those people, when they sin and God brings judgment, to them it is judgment. Does that make sense? To them it is condemnation. Now for the believing sinner... We have found our forgiveness in Jesus Christ, Old Testament and New Testament. We don't receive wrath anymore or judgment. We receive fatherly discipline. And sometimes it looks the exact same. If you go off into Babylonian captivity again, the unbelieving sinner was getting judgment. The believing sinner was getting fatherly correction. But one is judicial or penal and the other is corrective. One is designed to bring the law of God against that person. The other is designed to conform that person into the image of Jesus. And why I'm saying this is this. That's the the potter's freedom. To one class of people complaining in our passage, they get judgment. They get death, death. This is not designed to reform them into the image of Jesus. But to another class of sinner who's complaining, Moses, he gets correction. Is that fair of God to apply justice to one and fatherly mercy to the other. He treats them differently. He doesn't wink at the sin of, of one over the other, but he, he, he procures the satisfaction of justice for the believing sinner. Is that right or wrong of God? That's right. Remember MacArthur? God has a right to do with whatever he wants to anyone. Read Hebrews, Romans chapter nine. Jacob, I what? Esau, I what? Jacob I hated, I loved, and Esau I hated. And God has not done any wrong. One is a vessel of mercy, the other is a vessel of wrath for justice. And so among the unbelieving rabble in Israel, they, they're going to get death for their, for their sinning against God. And for Mo- Moses says to God, so where are you going to get all this food? I, I want you to think of that. Moses was the guy going to Pharaoh saying, let my people go. God is doing miracle after miracle through Moses. Moses was the one leading them through the Red Sea. They're sitting here literally in the wilderness eating manna from heaven. And Moses says to God, where are you getting the food? What do you call that, beloved? You call that unbelief. Moses, is unbelief a sin? Yes. Yes. Does Moses receive condemnation from God? No, he receives correction. So judgment to the unbelieving among the church and correction to the sinful believing among the church. We see both in this particular passage. And and Moses is kind of stunning when you see that. Again, it's the potter's um, freedom, as we've said. Now... Uh, what God does in two parts in our passage, and he, he He first will say to Moses, here's my promise to give you 70 men to help you. And then he'll say concerning the people, here's my promise to give you the quail meat. And then he makes good on the second part of the passage. He, he, it's, it's promise and then it's deed. It, it's the same thing. It, again, there are themes that run throughout the Bible. Law gospel is a theme. Um, creation, redemption is a theme. The other theme that can run through the Bible is uh, divine words in divine works. And the divine works establish the word. They prove the word. And so God says to Moses, I promise I'm going to give you some help. And then he makes good on his promise. And then God says to the people, I promise I'm going to give you some meat. And then he makes good on the promise. Now, every word in the Bible is true. There are some really pleasant words that we really like to read, and then there are some other words that really scare us, if you believe them. And we should believe everything in the Bible. As a baby Christian, when I read the Old Testament and God would tell the ch- children of Israel, see those Hittites over there? Here's what I want you to do. I could not understand those passages to save my hide. And it was R.C. Sproul, The Holiness of God, and even though I started to understand it a little bit better, I really didn't like it a whole lot. Is a scary passage. The wages of sin is what? Death. That is a scary truth, but it's true. So when God says the wages of sin is death, He's gonna bring that to pass. When God said to His people there's eternal life, that's true. So both the threats and the warnings of God will come true, because it's God is true, and then the promise of blessings are equally true. Is heaven true? My father in law, Hindus, said, Where is heaven? Have you been to heaven? Has anybody been to heaven to talk to you? And of course I'm wanting to talk to him about Jesus. Yes, Jesus has come from heaven to tell us how to go to heaven. Heaven is true. Is hell true? So the blessed place is true, and the awful place is true. So when God makes a promise, I'm going to give you helpers, it'll come to pass. When God says to those who disbelieve, you hate me, you hate my government, I'm going to give you so much meat, it will be a curse to you, because your God is your belly, and I'm not your God. And that will come to pass as well. So God is a holy God. God has justice on vessels of uh, justice and wrath, and he has mercy on vessels of mercy and love. But he promises and then he delivers. Now, as far as the 70 elders, Jethro, Jethro is father, uh, uh, Moses' father in law, the Midianite. And this is going to be fun when we get to Numbers chapter 12. I think it's fun, but I don't know. Pray for me on that one. But, but anyways. Jethro, it's where he, Miriam is messing with Moses because he marries a black girl. And I, I just think it's super interesting. Um, she's from Cush or Ethiopia. Um, anyways, so Moses' father in law, Jethro, says, go get 70 elders to help you, to help carry the load. So this has already been an idea that we find in redemptive history. So here, God tells. Moses, whether it's these seventy or not, go get seventy tribal leaders. What these seventy tribal leaders will do specifically, we're not told. Essentially, they're going to be pulling on the leadership ore. That's what these men are for. But they, this is where the the Sanhedrin is seventy plus one. The Sanhedrin system came out of the Babylonian captivity. It's not in the Bible per se in the Old Testament, but it was developed, and we can understand that when we read the, the New Testament. The Sanhedrin is the 70 ruling elders plus one, the high priest. Even Jesus Christ uses the 70 idea to denote that the New Testament church is the Israel of God. Luke 10, 1. Now, after the Lord appointed 70 others, Christ appointed 70 others. He sent them out in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he was going to come. So to Moses, Moses prays a prayer, kill me. And God does what? He doesn't kill him. Moses doesn't ask for help. He, he asks for death. And what does God give him? Help. Beloved, I, I, I know you've experienced this. We have mumbled and grumbled and griped and groaned. I know everybody here has. Moan, 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 gripe, 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 gripe. And then God gives us something good we haven't even asked for. Can God correct his erring children, which Moses was an erring child, with a chanta. In Hindi, that's a slap. Can he do it? Yes. I think this is just me, but this is just me in Romans chapter 3. It's the kindness of God that leads us often to repentance. We're usually, when we're sinning as a believing child, we're waiting for the slap. We're not ready for the love of God but for the grace of the mercy of God. That melts us. I don't know about you, but when I'm just being a grumbling, griping, unthankful minister, and God just lavishes love upon me, (laughs) I didn't even ask for this good thing, and God does it. What does that engender? Repentance and faith and reformation. That's what it engenders. So I know there are Christians that are big on, man, you need to bring the hammer down. I know, I know, I I can preach Hebrews chapter 12, I know. But oftentimes God doesn't bring the hammer down to to correct us. He He brings love and grace and mercy. We don't even ask for stuff, and he gives it. He's correcting his wayward son, Moses, with love and grace and mercy. And then now with the other class, the griping Israelites, what's stunning about these folks is... They are groaning and griping, and then God, through Moses, says to the people, Tell them to get ready because they're going to get a boatload of um, quail and it's going to come out of their noses. I'm so angry with them. Now, this is just on the heels of that first section. These people, not only did they experience the goodness of God, they watched people die for complaining. They watched it. And you know what they did? They kept going. Sometimes unbelievers say this. This is a Luke 16. If Jesus could get down off the throne and come to me and do some miracle, I would believe. You remember the, the rich guy, Lazarus, that went to hell? And Father Abraham, in Abraham's bosom, is a picture of Christ. He says to Father Abraham Christ, send someone back from the dead to talk to my five brothers so they don't end up here. And Jesus says what to them? If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to listen to a person back from the dead Seeing is not believing. Seeing is a gift of God. We could literally see people being consumed by fire for sinning against God instantly. But if we did not have the spirit gift of faith, all oh, we would walk away and think, boy, that's a bummer. You know, life's lousy. I need some more stuff here. It would not do anything to us. So seeing is not believing. Believing is a gift of the Holy Spirit. But these people see their compatriots grumbling and they get killed for it. And they continue grumbling, and then God tells his man, tell them, I'm going to give them a barge load of quail, and it's going to come out of their nose. I'm so mad with them. What should these people have have done when Moses told them that, right then and there, before they got the quail? We are so, 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 so sorry. We don't even want any quail. The bread's great. The water's great. We repent. See, there's a lag of time in between God's threats, his judgment, his threats, and then further judgment. Sometimes people think, oh, God is so quick on the draw. God is so slow on the draw. These people, the the Puritans would use the phrase, trifle away. They have trifled away watching the judgment of God fall on their fellow unbelievers. They have trifled it away, and they haven't learned. They've not been made better. And then God gives them a super abundance of what they do want. And it actually is a curse to them. Sometimes, and I'm going to say this and I'm going to quit. Sometimes, because God is so, such a good and a loving father. If you're a dad or a mom, you know this as a dad or a mom. Sometimes our kids want something. I want it, I want it, I want it. And we know it's not good for them. When we say, Buttercup, we love you, the answer is no. And Buttercup doesn't want to hear the word no, and so they get mad. You don't love me and I want it, and you don't love me. And the mother and the father wants to say, look at you, silly person. I do love you. That's why you're not getting it. Now go do something else. Sometimes God is like that with us. We want it, we want it, we want it, we want it, and God knows this is not going to be good for you. You can't handle it. You, this is not good for you. The answer is no. But then we look around and think, wait a minute. The unbelievers are absolutely living large. They're healthier, they're more respected, they just live large. This is a Psalm 73. Why are we getting the hard stuff? They're getting the easy stuff. Is that an expression of God's love to them? No, it's a harbinger of judgment. God gives to these people a super abundance of material goods, even food, and it's a curse. It's a curse. Read Hebrews 11, Hebrews 12. It's a curse. Think, why are we wearing goat skins? Why are we sick? Why are we that? Why are we that? Well, because God loves you. And God wants to keep you close to him. And God wants to make you serviceable to Christ. And when you look around at the people who have the superabundance of health and wealth, it's not a sign that God loves them. It's a sign of judgment. God is judging these people with a superabundance. You think, well, we're getting what we want. This is the greatest heaven you're ever going to get, and it's not going to last very long. And the Bible will record it in a number of places in the Psalms. These greedy people, their God was their stomach, and God gave them over to their false, lustful desires. So th- these things are here, both the correction of Moses in a gentle way and the judgment on the, on the unbelieving in the household of faith in a frightening way, these things are here for our instruction regarding our... Um, contentment in Christ. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.